Hello and welcome back to another episode of Reflecting Value, the podcast where we explore the big questions relating to cultural value in a reflective space. In this episode, I'm taking a deep dive into the ways in which the cultural sector has used the digital to engage with audiences and how this changed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Some people might say that there was 10 years progress overnight when physical spaces were forced to shut down across the globe, whilst others question whether digital participation will ever match up to the live, in-person experiences that we're used to. To understand more, I spoke with a range of experts who had begun to move to the digital pre-pandemic, as well as learning about how organisations had to change their practice. During the first lockdown, I embarked on an epic cross-stitch, tried and failed to make sourdough, and downloaded TikTok. I could spend hours scrolling through the playful and creative content, and the more I engaged, the more the algorithm knew what to send my way. It wasn't long until cultural organisations started showing up on my feed. The Black Country Living Museum, National Heritage, the Museum of London, and the Royal Opera House. The incredible view from inside our orchestra pit. Hello, my name is Richie Sidious and I'm here to talk through how to do a pirouette. Um, I'm going to start from the fourth position. You're listening to a selection of TikToks from the Royal Opera House, who've amassed half a million followers on their channel and have been posting throughout the pandemic. From ballerinas working from home to clips and past performances showing costumes, choreography and the operatic company. I sat down with Rebecca Black, their social media editor, to talk about how the Royal Opera House's approach to engaging with audiences changed when it closed and why they began to use TikTok. It's a very natural home for the Royal Opera House because it's a platform that primarily showcases performance and uh, the trends that happen on TikTok are very often associated with dance or music. It's very easy for us uh, to relate to them and find ways to join in. I think also it it kind of, it, it is known for being quite sort of lighthearted and playful. I personally enjoy pushing those boundaries of what is an acceptable brand tone of voice. You know, we're still very much being appropriate Uh, being the Royal Opera House in essence, uh, but finding a way to speak to the audience in a way which is authentic to the platform. I think, aside from the data, I think just looking at the comments, it's a really high level of engagement and it's a very young audience. And I think that's really exciting because it's not an art form that is known for having a huge youth following. Out of all your TikToks, which ones um, would you say have had the best engagement? I think my favourite are our dance trends challenge. Um, that was that was quite recently in the last few weeks. And uh, yeah, just to like explain it a little bit more, if you haven't seen it. Uh, it was this trend in which people show off in quite a silly way, made up dance moves that they would do in a club. So we created a ballet version uh, that was, we did it in two parts, but uh, this was, you know, coming up with things like showing off my new robes or uh, the elegant robot. <laughs> um, it was it was 
pretty lighthearted and and uh, silly, really. But the second part has had nearly 900,000 views and over 140,000 likes, which is quite amazing, really. And then the most popular has got to be the Queen of the Night aria from the Magic Flute. Post a video that made you go viral. We've posted this quite a few times and every time it goes down in an absolute storm. But the most popular time that we posted it, it reached nearly 14 million views, over 2 million likes. And this kind of astonishes me really because this is an opera that was written about 230 years ago uh, and it clearly still resonates with people so much, especially, you know, quite young people. And I think it's a really excellent example of how the art form is still very relevant today and very exciting to younger people. They just need to be introduced in the right way. So what do you think it, it takes to have um, sort of a, a successful TikTok presence as a cultural organisation? And what learning would you share with others working in this space? I, I think it would be wrong not to acknowledge the fact that the Royal Opera House has an enormous archive of audiovisual content at our fingertips. You know, we're very lucky to have that. And for that reason, I I wouldn't want to kind of make out like it's so possible for any cultural organisation to necessarily have the level of success that we've managed to have. But there are definitely some kind of learnings that I can share. I think one thing I would suggest is, if you can, to try and get a contact at TikTok. Um, we have uh, we work with a fantastic guy called Sanjit, and um, he often gives us a steer, which is really helpful. Um, but on top of that, he also alerts us to new functionality and often lets us try it out quite early on. Um, and this is really key, actually using new functionality, because the algorithm will prioritise content using any new functionality. It's also very good to leverage trends, to post consistently, essentially, there isn't really a perfect formula for what works on TikTok, but what does work is what stops people in their feed. I think part of the reason that we've had a lot of success with that is because opera is inherently very over the top, very theatrical as an art form. And I think the drama and sometimes the, you know, slight ridiculousness of it cuts through and I think it shows that, that an appetite for it exists online as long as you're picking your platforms and your content right. TikTok has clearly provided the Royal Opera House with opportunities to be more playful with audiences and the data they have gathered really speak to how young people in particular are engaging with this content. As Rebecca pointed out, the Royal Opera House already had a large international audience and deep digital archives they could draw on to engage with their audiences. 
What about organisations with less of an international and more of a local reach? How are they engaging in this new digital world? Over the past 18 months, the Centre for Cultural Value have been leading a national research project, exploring the impacts of COVID-19 on the UK cultural sector. One of the researchers who's been conducting interviews with cultural organisations is Dr Harry Weeks from Newcastle University. Right, it's now recording. The level looks all right. There may be a little bit of background noise here as well, Um, just like university noises. I spoke to Harry about how small galleries and museums have been affected by COVID and what their future looks like. There's been a sort of 30-year plus trajectory of change in terms of how contemporary art has has um has related to its audiences and how cultural what cultural participation looks like in contemporary art and in particular i think over the past few years something that um we're actually really interested in looking at on this project and we're um danny child who's a kind of a partner in crime on this project um the thing one of the things that we're looking at at the moment is the rise of the so-called useful museum so in interviews that we've conducted there's so much discussion of usefulness of artists art and and culture and museums and galleries all being useful for audiences and that's something that i think is a real shift the basis of the idea of fine art has always been rooted in some idea of uselessness and another kind of term that we're thinking about in relation to our research is the idea of civic responsibility thinking about somewhere like um, the baltic in gateshead um, it's such a visible um, part of the kind of the landscape of gateshead and newcastle just by virtue of where it is by virtue of how tall it is by virtue of how not tall the rest of Newcastle and Gateshead are in terms of the height of buildings and the kind of the visibility of the institution within the city is sort of I think weighs heavily on these organisations who now really see that sense of their visibility translating into responsibility. I think you know museums and galleries are kind of realising in part I think by necessity that they have these really kind of crucial roles in particular, particularly in, in kind of cities, um, engaging with communities. And, and COVID has really brought that to light. So I think that's really interesting. And I wonder how, whether in the kind of interviews you've been doing, whether there's been any discussion of the kind of holding a digital space and what that means to, to the different museums and galleries that you've been kind of interviewing. You know, initially, and I think it was really, really brief there was this very kind of celebratory moment where the digital contained all of this possibility and and then that quite quickly I think was overtaken so you know I don't think we even really captured that process of it being of the digital turning from oh isn't this exciting there's loads of potential for reaching new audiences too yeah there's lots of problems in terms of who has access and so on and so forth and but what we found interesting and this is what we wrote about in our piece in arts professional was how the way that they were using the digital was changing quite substantially and and it wasn't about reaching this kind of broad audience but actually the way the way that so many of the places we were interviewing were using the digital was really tied into locality. It was tied into reaching communities close to them. 
And we think of the digital as being related to a kind of breadth when almost universally people that we were talking to, the digital was being used specifically to target local, often very, very local, hyper-local even audiences with a very kind of clear uh, interest in developing really kind of strong connections with the communities that they were reaching into. That, I think, is a really kind of interesting change in how we conceive of the digital as relating to the kind of physical functions of a museum or gallery. And if we're thinking about the physical space of a museum or gallery um, and its kind of function changing in this through this useful museum model... The digital is going with that as well, or at least that's that's kind of what we're picking up, is that the digital is part of that shift towards usefulness. One of the examples that we look at, that, that like they have been using the digital to engage local communities, but then they realised that one of the big problems was people not having data on their phones to be able to engage. They started, when they did the kind of sign-up thing for people to do it, they had a tick box, and you could tick a box and you'd get sent out... Um, £10 worth of top-up for your phone. And no one was ticking the box, so they reversed it. So instead the tick box was, tick this box if you don't want a £10 top-up. And then lots of people were taking it up, and part of that they were kind of hypothesising that it was to do with the idea of people don't want to be seen to be in need, and therefore they don't want to tick that box. But if the box is already ticked for them, then they will take it. So there's an interesting kind of dynamic around how, if you're using the digital to engage with local communities, how do you go about doing that and what kind of pitfalls are there on on en route? If you had a crystal ball and you could see into the future, what would you like to see or what what would you be, be uh, concerned about um, not being there? The thing, I mean, the thing I'd like to see is, and I don't think, you know, as I've already said, I don't, I don't think this is, uh, this is likely or even possible. But I think, I think I don't want to see is a return to what there was before, and that's kind of, you know, it's interesting comparing, for instance, interviews that we're doing in museums and galleries, the museums and galleries sector, um, as compared to something like theatre where the interviews in theatre are showing a much kind of a much stronger desire to go back to a pre-pandemic norm. And museums and galleries, that's really not the case. Um, I think in the sector there was uh, a keen awareness of the problems that visual arts and you know museums and galleries more broadly have had in terms of inequality, both in terms of um, workforce, in terms of who is producing and who is responsible for the display, and but also in terms of um, audience and in terms of who art is for or who thinks art is for them. You know, people, people at director level in these organisations are really paying attention to this. And paying attention is one thing and then acting on it is another but I, I do have a degree of confidence that that there is a desire to to start kind of using the inevitable changes that are going to be forced on uh, institutions as a launchpad to 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 kind of trying to steer away from the the ways in which kind of inequality has been entrenched in the sector, and I think that's a really 
It's a really long process. It's a really difficult process. It's a process that is always in danger of simply becoming something that people pay lip service to, but without necessarily acting upon. But I, I, I have a degree of confidence that, that there is a kind of a desire and there are new generations coming through in, in the sector, working in the sector, who, who see this as something which is vitally important to the kind of survival of arts and culture and, you know, remaining relevant. And what I don't want to see is a perpetuation of the problems in terms of cultural inequality that existed before the pandemic. And I can really visibly see in the interviews that we've done incredibly clearly a really widespread awareness and understanding that things need to change. It's clear from what Harry says that there's still a long way to go when it comes to the role that museums can play within the hyper-local communities in which they're located. But even at this hyper-local level, how much ownership do communities feel they have over what's represented within these museum and gallery spaces? And how might the digital empower people to reclaim their heritage? You'll remember back in 2020, in the protests that followed the murder of George Floyd, that protesters began to target statues of slave traders and other figures of colonial British history. In fact, recently the Black Lives Matter protesters who toppled a statue of Edward Colston in Bristol were found not guilty of criminal damage. There have also been several initiatives which challenge disputed objects within museum contexts, where objects have been historically taken through force. So how can the digital begin to open up debate in this area and allow communities to construct their own narratives about their heritage? You know, I think there's a powerlessness that uh, we grew up with and we just know that, you know, African history is this and it's primitive and it's this. And you just grow up with this heaviness and just this, like, what can I do about it? It's so huge. I spoke to Chow Tayana, a Kenyan historian and digital heritage specialist, about her work which uses technology to preserve, engage and disseminate African heritage. I started by asking Chow how she became a digital heritage specialist. Well, I started from from home, I'd say. Uh, I grew up uh, in the same space with my mom and my grandparents. And a lot of how my worldview was oriented was um, through history and through culture, just by virtue of spending a lot of time within that environment. I studied computer science um, for my undergrad. I was doing a lot of um, projects, particularly the biggest one being a project to document the railways in Kenya. And after I finished my undergrad, I thought, you know, this is a space that I want to stay in. Um, and I just don't want it to become a passion. I want it to really be my career. And at that time, there was very little in the field of digital heritage in the world, let alone even here in Kenya. And I remember by chance thinking, you know what, I, I want to do a master's and let me sit down by my computer and see what's out there. And I literally typed in master's plus computer science plus history. <laughs> And the first thing that came up was um, this program at the Glasgow School of Art. And I applied. I was, I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship. And really, I think that's how I entered the space as a professional in terms of getting the tools and the language to describe what this is. 
But personally, I have been doing this kind of historical inquiry, curatorial, curious work um, since I was a young girl. Amazing. What what an interesting kind of journey into this space. Because we have a really wide range of listeners, and as you say, there's not really a lot of this work out there in the world. Um, I wondered whether you might be able to kind of talk me through what digital heritage is. So when we look at digitization, we are talking about, you know, digitizing archives, objects, monuments, virtual tours and the likes. For me, digitization is also a kind of freedom. There's a lot of um, legacy and exclusion that's tied to the physical nature of museums and archives just by virtue of how they started and by virtue of how these knowledge systems have been structured. Majority of the museums that were started on the African continent were started um, by either imperial societies, so they really excluded black people and Africans. So the museum in itself has become a very problematic space in the way in which we have inherited it. You know, we often talk about when you go to a museum, it's like, don't touch. And when you go to an archive, do you have your gloves? Please don't have water around. You know, there's a, there's a very kind of clinical approach towards working with artifacts, working with archives that some people may not feel like they can come to because, you know, they're too scared to bring themselves to this space for fear of making a mistake. Or is this for me? I'm not a researcher. I'm just a hobbyist. I guess what I'm trying to say is I think digitization brings with it a freedom of of interpretation, um, a freedom of space and in which you can access that data. And that's not to say that digitization is perfect, but at the same time, I think that kind of interpretation gives people the freedom to imagine. That's Yeah, that's really interesting and kind of links in with another question that I had for you, which is kind of how does, how does digitization change the ways in which people engage with culture, do you think? I think the, the relationship or the primary way in which I'm seeing digital heritage, per se, and digitization in particular, change relationships, I think it's through dialogue the ways in which we have internalized working with institutions in which it's one way, it's passive, you know, so the institution hosts an exhibition, you come and you view it and you go. And there's really no active input from the audience or from from someone who wants to to respond to that data in a physical setting. Uh, So digitization in its facilitation of um, multi-directional, top-down, Um, down top (laughs) side to side dialogue you know you have dialogue between institution and audience audience and institution audience and audience you know and I think in that kind of facilitation of of multiple conversations that museums and archives and libraries are not just spaces of consuming content they are becoming spaces of facilitating discussion and facilitating explorations and I think it's really beautiful to to be able to witness kind of this opening up um, of the institution. Do you have a sort of specific example of a project that you've worked on that maybe kind of explores these ideas of breaking down those barriers between institution and people? I'll speak very, very selfishly to one of my, my projects. And this is a project called the Museum of British Colonialism which is a volunteer initiative um, that myself and three other women um, based here in Kenya and in the UK 
started to to really explore and to share and to challenge you know um accounts of of british colonialism and we were coming from the realization that we knew of colonialism but i really did not understand the experience of it but what we were saying i think in that statement was what is a museum and what can a museum be when when we reimagine what it looks like um today and what it looks like when it's inclusive of different people and different perspectives and so in the past uh, I'd say 3 to 4 years we have grown tremendously primarily through digital interactions and digital media we have people writing to us to share their stories and i think it's i go back to that facilitation of dialogue that when you create a space in which audiences can become active participants in the narrative you get it's it, it's so much uh, more valuable for us as an institution to have all these different perspectives that would not make it into books or newspapers or movies and you know so it's it's been really tremendous to see how people feel that they can connect with the museum how people can send us photographs and narratives and stories but at the same time how people are learning um and we have very much been deliberate about saying that this is a vulnerable process for us as well I came to this subject knowing very little about it and um what we are doing is not teaching but actually just sharing what we learn as we move along. So you've been working in this industry for around 10 years now. Um how would you say that this area has has evolved over that time? I I I I can't remember who who this quote is attributed to but it goes something like the general trend of life is that nothing happens and then nothing happens and then everything happens and really i would say that is the best way to describe what being in this space has felt like um because i would say for maybe 5 to 6 years i felt like i was stagnant people couldn't really understand you know why is this important what is it for and so there were many years of just thinking that wow is this is this really all in my head or you know it's there's very little examples in Kenya or even in the region for me to look up to or to even borrow from but i would say in the last um 3 4 years particularly accelerated massively by the pandemic and by people's realization of just how just digital interaction can still facilitate a lot of work there has been a lot of growth and i would say it is growth on two fronts so there's the growth coming from the industry and the sector itself and by the sector i'm talking about museums and archives and libraries and practitioners and then there's a lot of growth from the audience as well i like to look at the example of some of the social media accounts that we have here in kenya which have followings of almost even 200,000 people and they're just purely tweeting historical content and it's fascinating to see people establish their niche and say I purely want to talk about musical instruments and I want to talk about the culture and the heritage of hair you know and you know have people very very deliberately going drilling down into really specific aspects and curating this wonderful content So um, if you compare that with the number of visitors to museums physical visitors there's a big difference so the engagement with this content and with the culture and with the heritage that is happening online is fascinating to me so 
I guess, what what are your hopes for the role that digital heritage is going to play within different communities um, over the coming years? How would you like to see kind of practice develop? For me, what I want to see is this kind of uh, a liberation of... <laughs> it's, it's very, very poetic, but you know, in, in how digital heritage can allow us to encounter the historical space. And when I mean us, I'm talking about anyone. And the the domain of history and the field of history has been very guarded and very secured through time, you know, through by those in power, by those with more leverage, by and I, I think digital media in itself and digital heritage can for many intents and purposes severely dismantle that. And so one of the things that I talk about in within my organization, African Digital Heritage, is that um, technology is not just about the future. You know, for me, it is a way of radically reimagining and retelling and restructuring past and re-understanding of past. And that is the future, you know. I think that, that multiplicity um, for me is is what digital heritage should do and should continue to do across all levels, audience, institution, hobbyist, practitioner, professional, student, like it really is a freedom to to reimagine. And I am interested very much in the ways in which active participation within culture and history has an impact on identity, has an impact on on your mental well being, on your you know, a restorative healing of especially for those who have been disenfranchised from from their cultures and from their their core and for, from their roots, I think there is a healing aspect to this that perhaps um, I would love to to continue exploring as an individual. Uh, it I speak also from my perspective. Uh, it has been very healing for me to not just feel so powerless. You know, I think there's a powerlessness that. Uh, we grew up with and we just know that you know African history is this and it's primitive and it's this and you just grow up with this heaviness and just this like what can I do about it it's so huge and uh, even through my projects individual projects or professional projects I found it to be very healing for me and and in a way that really restores a connection to something that I wasn't quite connected to and that has come primarily through active participation, um, not just consumption. And I feel that it is important for everyone to participate um, in this way for your identity, for your well-being. I do, I do believe it is truly important, but also that digital media and the tools that we have make this easier. I think I've only begun to scratch the surface of the digital cultural landscape in this episode. The digital appears to have a lot to offer cultural organisations and their audiences, whether it's finding new ways to connect with large international audiences or reconnecting at a hyper-local level, or the ways in which the digital can help people to tell their own stories and interact with their heritage in a more accessible way. There are, of course, limitations to the digital, with there being inequalities for those who can access and experience culture in this way. I think the pandemic has really showcased this, 
and has challenged cultural organisations to rethink the ways in which they can connect with people and places. But what do you think? Get involved with the discussion by searching hashtag reflecting value on Twitter. That's all from me. Thank you for listening to Reflecting Value, a podcast from the Centre for Cultural Value. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. See you next time.